0: From the very first episode of this podcast, Allo and I have dedicated ourselves to telling you stories of people whose constitutional rights were violated, but who were denied justice because of qualified immunity. Mohammed Mohayman, Kari Illich, Chase Howes, James King, R. Tobias. It's important that we say their names. But today... I want to tell you the story of someone whose name I don't know. Someone whose rights were violated, who is denied justice because of qualified immunity, but who needs to remain anonymous because they are only four years old. In December 2014, the El Paso County Department of Human Services in Colorado Springs, Colorado, received a complaint that a little girl was being abused. To protect her, court records identified the child only with the initials I.B. The complaint said that I.B. had little bumps on her face, a bruise the size of a nickel on her neck, a small red mark on her lower back, two small cuts on her stomach, and bruised knees. The very next day, a caseworker was sent to I.B.'s preschool to see if there was any proof of this terrible allegation. I.B., who was only four years old at the time, was brought into the nurse's office, where the caseworker undressed her and then, over the child's protests took pictures with a state-issued cell phone of her naked body. The caseworker found no evidence of abuse. None. Still, she went to IB's home and interviewed her mother, a disabled Army veteran. The caseworker never mentioned that she had strip-searched and photographed her four-year-old daughter. She asked a few questions and left. A few weeks later, the case was closed. No abuse was found. I.B.'s mother, who court documents only refer to as Jane Doe, found out that her daughter had been strip-searched at her preschool when I.B. confided, I hope that woman doesn't come back again because I don't like it when she takes off all my clothes. Horrified, I.B.'s mom confronted the school and the caseworker, asking whether they had, in fact, strip-searched her four-year-old daughter. Both the school and the caseworker lied, denying any wrongdoing. Three weeks later, IB told her mother the caseworker had taken naked pictures of her, even though she told her not to. Again, the mother confronted the Department of Human Services and her daughter's preschool. And again, the school and the caseworker denied everything. Eventually, the truth came out, and I.B.'s mother sued the state of Colorado caseworker and her supervisor for violating her daughter's Fourth Amendment rights. But as I'm sure you've surmised by now, I.B.'s case was dismissed at summary judgment because of qualified immunity. Now, what makes all this so shocking, beyond the horrifying details of the case, is the fact that just a few years earlier, the Supreme Court weighed in on the very issue of warrantless strip searches of minors in school. In that landmark decision, A 13-year-old girl was strip-searched by school officials looking for illegal drugs. Drugs, it turned out, the student did not have. And the Supreme Court, in a 7-2 decision, said that this was a clear and unequivocal violation of the student's Fourth Amendment rights. And just in case you're wondering, this is the very definition of clearly established law. The legal standard needed to overcome a qualified immunity challenge. So, what gives? Why was IB's case dismissed? Well, the lower courts found that these two cases were just different enough to grant the caseworker qualified immunity. Why? because that landmark Supreme Court case involved the warrantless strip search of a 13-year-old while looking for illegal drugs, and IB's case involved the warrantless strip search of a 4-year-old while looking for abuse. Both were about warrantless strip searches of minors on school grounds. But because one was about drugs and the other about abuse the court decided the law was not clearly established, and the caseworker couldn't possibly have known that what she did to I.B. violated her Fourth Amendment rights. And so, the court granted her qualified immunity. I.B. and her mother appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, but they were denied certain. And so... With the path to justice thwarted by qualified immunity, IB's case simply went away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Unaccountable with me, Ben Cohen. And me, Aloe Black. We're joined now by Mahogany Reed who is the John Payton Appellate and Supreme Court Advocacy Fellow at the Legal Defense Fund. Prior to LDF, Mahogany practiced complex commercial litigation in Houston, Texas. The LDF is the country's first and foremost civil and human rights law firm. The LDF was founded in 1940 by Thurgood Marshall, went on to become the first African-American Supreme Court justice. From that era to the present, the LDF's mission has been transformative to achieve racial justice, equality, and an inclusive society. Mahogany, thanks for joining us on Unaccountable. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by asking you in general, what the role of the LDF is in trying to end qualified immunity, and why you're so committed to the fight.
1: Thank you for that question, Ben. Um, Policing is at a tipping point in this country. For the past several years, the country has started to grapple with both the history and the modern reality of policing in this country. And the fact that Black people and other people of color are constantly victimized by the criminal legal system. They are disproportionately likely to be stopped for pretextual reasons, disproportionately likely to be searched, disproportionately likely to be arrested, and disproportionately likely to have force used against them during an arrest. This is all well documented, but the recent killings of Black Americans, including Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, Dante Wright, Elijah McClain, Adam Toledo, Latinx American, and numerous others by police officers, has exposed the need for immediate police accountability and the need for structural change addressing police brutality and misconduct. Um, And I think attention has been properly placed on qualified immunity, which effectively allows illegal, unconstitutional, unconstitutional, brutal police misconduct to go unpunished and allows officers to engage in excessive force with impunity and without any real accountability. Qualified immunity is a a critical hindrance to true police reform and must be addressed. And so we at LDF are devoting substantial resources to the fight to end qualified immunity, not only advocating for federal legislation, including the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, that would erect nationwide standards uh, to hold officers accountable, including by removing qualified immunity for police officers, but also litigating in federal circuit courts across the country in hopes of making incremental changes to the most unworkable parts of the qualified immunity doctrine. And so, you know, we believe the fight for qualified immunity is quintessentially a racial justice fight. It goes to the core of LDF's mission, and we will not relent until the promise of true policing reform, reform that meets the needs of all communities and meets the needs of this moment of reckoning we're in, uh, becomes a reality.
2: Wow. It's like an angel has descended upon us with this information, (laughs) fighting for the good of all humanity. This is a breath of fresh air, Mahogany. And I know you've been doing this work for years already, but I was just introduced to the concept of qualified immunity last year. And so to know that there have been folks who have you know, zeroed in on this and recognized that is the measure of impunity that really, I think, amounts to a culture of, of abuse within policing is refreshing to know that you're, that you're there and that you brilliant human being have, uh, you know, left the commercial litigation world and entered the world of fighting for the rights and the civil rights of the Lesser heard. Thank you so much. Um, earlier in the series, we told the story of Kyrie Ellich, who was murdered by sheriff's deputies in Lee County, Alabama in 2013 after they tased him 19 times. Now, for those of you who are listening, please do go back and listen to that episode if you can. We're telling you these difficult stories to help you understand the injustices going on right in front of our eyes. Now, Mahogany, I understand the LDF fought Kyrie Illich's case all the way to the Supreme Court. It would be great to get your perspective on that case.
1: Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I did not personally work on Kyrie Illich's case, but it was probably the, actually the first qualified immunity case I'd read after I joined LDF. Um, And it really is heartbreaking. I have to Um, you know, reiterate what you said, Aloe. I think folks should go back and listen to um, the episode highlighting Kari's story. I mean, I think his story highlights so many things that are wrong with policing and with the qualified immunity doctrine. And just to recap, Mr. Illich was a 25-year-old Black man in the middle of a mental health crisis. Um, when officers responded to uh, a call concerning him. Now, uh, you know, there's a separate conversation to be had about whether officers should have been responding to uh, a call about Mr. Illich's mental health crisis. But during the call, like you said, Al, officers tased Mr. Illich a total of 19 times, um, 13 times after he'd already been... uh, mostly subdued and was in the course of being arrested. He was hogtied and he was laying on the ground, uh, hogtied when an officer more than twice his size knelt on his back for several minutes and he died shortly thereafter. Now, any reasonable person, I think, would look at those facts and would be appalled and would agree that the officers who caused Mr. Illich's really cruel and untimely death should be accountable, be held accountable in some way. Uh, But because of the qualified immunity doctrine, the trial court in his case, and then the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in his case, dismissed his case. They concluded that the officer's use of force was not clearly prescribed. And because, you know, circuit case law had previously held that an officer who uses additional tases after a person is fully subdued violates the Fourth Amendment, but not an officer who uses additional and unnecessary tases in the course of subduing someone. So we at ODF disagreed and brought the case before the United States Supreme Court. Um, And I think we made an argument that you'll see a bit more of going forward, which is that general legal principles, principles that prohibit officers from using unnecessary force uh, is enough to put an officer on notice that tasing someone 13 times uh, is unconstitutional. A plaintiff shouldn't have to identify uh, another case with similar factual background or similar factual circumstances Um, in order to prevail over a qualified immunity defense. Um, And so that's the argument we made. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court denied review, um, and the officers who are responsible for Mr. Illidge's death are, you know, left unaccountable. Um, But it really is a case that, like I said, exemplifies the types of cases in which qualified immunity can do substantial harm to the families and the communities of of the victims and can embolden officers to deploy increasing levels of force where it's unnecessary but protected by the doctrine of qualified immunity.
0: We've also told you the story of Chase House, who was brutally assaulted by police officers whilst on his front porch in 2016. The LDF fought that case too.
1: Yes. Yes, we did. Um, And we came across that case last March and what stood out to us at the organization was the facts of the case. Again, you all told the story of Mr. House um, much better than I can do right now. Um, But I'll just again briefly recap that Mr. House uh, was you know a twenty two, twenty three year old man. He was just arriving back home late in the evening, after walking to a local convenience store. Um, he was standing on his front porch. He was fishing his keys from his pockets, and he was on the phone with his mother when a car, an unmarked car, drove by, and the passenger asked Mister House whether he lived in the home, and he responded affirmatively. Yes, I live here. Um, The car started to drive away, but stopped, and the person who was the passenger in the car again asked Mr. House, do you live here? Uh, Mr. House responded truthfully and affirmatively, yes, I live here, and he used an expletive. Um, The person who was later identified as an officer said Mr. House had a smart mouth and a bad attitude um, and that he was going to jail. so the officers accosted Mr. House, slammed him to the porch, porch floor as he was standing on his at the front door of his own house um, and handcuffed him. And, you know, in the midst of arresting him, one of the officers hit him in the back of the neck and head area. At no point did any of the officers uh, attempt to verify that Mr. House lives in the home by checking his ID um, or other proof of his residence in the home. And they completely ignored Mr. House's mother, um, who actually came upon the scene when the officers were arresting Mr. House um, and who confirmed that Mr. House lived in the home. And, you know, Mr. House was arrested, spent a couple of days in jail, and faced criminal prosecution for uh, baseless charges until they were dismissed several months later. And, What really stands out to me about the facts of this case, it's not, this is not an especially egregious case, right? It's not a headline catching case where someone who was minding their business was approached and shot and killed by officers or otherwise uh, severely injured by officers, but they do represent what I think is a common experience in Black communities and other communities of color where Black people are often stopped by police for trivial reasons or for no reason at all and for simply existing and face the threat of use of force by police officers. Something that we didn't capture in the brief um, that goes to this point was that Mr. House had been, before he was approached and accosted and assaulted by officers on his front porch, just a few minutes before he was stopped on his way from the convenience store by a police officer. Um, he hadn't done anything wrong. The officer just wanted to know where he was coming from and where he was going. Um, And so in the span of an hour, Mr. House experienced at least two, um, arguably more, Fourth Amendment violations and there's no accountability. This is the unfortunate norm in Black communities across the country and I think highlights just as well as the more egregious cases, the deleterious effect of qualified immunity and the absence of accountability for police officers on Black people's constitutional rights in the policing context, and there, you know, is also the doctrinal errors the courts made in addressing um, the qualified immunity defense to Mr. House's um, lawsuit. Mr. House did later sue for um, excessive force, and his case was dismissed at least that claim was dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. And if you go back and look at the opinion, it was interesting to me and troubling to me how the Sixth Circuit engaged in the qualified immunity analysis. It it committed several legal errors, which we highlighted in our petition to the Supreme Court. But the most major one was that it required the court required Mr. House to identify a factually analogous case and faulted him for not doing so and said itself that it could not find a factually analogous case. But when LDF, we accepted the case, went back to look for factually analogous cases, we found several with very similar facts that the Sixth Circuit either ignored or, you know, overlooked if I'm being generous. And that was a troubling aspect of the analysis to me, is that court's Try not too often, but often do miss cases, you know, factually analogous cases that would warrant a denial of qualified immunity and, you know, often grant immunity because of its inability to find a case. And so that's another issue with the qualified immunity doctrine as applied in Mr. House's case and in other cases that was worth highlighting. Um, but unfortunately, the Supreme Court denied cert in that case. And so um, Mr. House was, was left without a remedy.
2: I'm really interested in the history of the doctrine when it was perverted in the way that it is used now to shield state agents and actors and federal agents and actors from from any accountability. And I believe it was 1967 and then later in the 80s, further kind of manipulated. And just doing... Cursory research. It looks like Justice Marshall began his tenure on the Supreme Court in 1967. This is a this is a stretch of my imagination and math, but I'm wondering if uh, there was um, some political and racial retaliation from the Supreme Court, knowing that there was going to be a black justice coming for establishing the doctrine or at least uh, creating the precedent that exists today. It's just a thought. Not that I could ever f- get the facts, you know.
1: <laughs> that's the um, that's a good question and an interesting thought. And you're right, I guess, <laughs> given the nature, uh, the secretive nature of internal Supreme Court workings, uh, we'll never know the answer to that. But, you know, um, the qualified immunity doctrine, as it's currently applied, you know, stems from, like you said, the 1982 case Harlow versus Fitzgerald, and since that point, well, before Harlow versus Fitzgerald, you know, obviously immunity for constitutional violations was not, you know, consistent with the promises of civil rights reform uh, that was. Brought about in the 1960s, but it really is the current construction and court's interpretation of the qualified immunity test, if you will, that that uh, continues to to wreak havoc on uh, you know civil rights plaintiffs' abilities to, to bring um, cases today. But that is that's a great a great point, a great question, and one that I, I don't know that we'll ever have the answer to.
2: Right. So when it comes to qualified immunity and the tradition within the courts um, to exercise decisions based on precedent. To what extent does a justice or or does a judge and a court have leeway to act outside of precedent?
1: Well, I'll say that um, for... Federal circuit courts, which are a step below the United States Supreme Court, there are 13 in the country. That is where the majority of qualified immunity cases or excessive force cases or civil rights cases sort of end, right? It's very rare that a case will go to the Supreme Court. Um, And federal circuit courts are bound by Supreme Court precedent. There is no changing Supreme Court precedent in federal circuit courts. And so, if the Supreme Court says, you know, qualified immunity requires a similar case, a factually analogous case, you know, lower courts are bound by that decision. Uh, But the Supreme Court is well within its rights under certain circumstances to uh, change precedent. Um, And I think an important point worth making is that the Qualified Immunity Doctrine is a judge-made doctrine. The Qualified Immunity Doctrine is not rooted in any statute or in any constitutional provision, but was created out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court in the 1960s. And so the Supreme Court, just as it made the Qualified Immunity Doctrine, uh, can uh, Answer calls to end the qualified immunity doctrine. And, you know, the circumstances it would take for the court to do that um, are unclear, Um, but it does have that authority to undo its precedent, to um, end qualified immunity. It has Um, faced calls internally from current sitting justices and prior sitting justices on the Supreme Court to address and or end the qualified immunity doctrine. And so that is uh, certainly, uh, you know, well within the the authority of the Supreme Court to uh, either modify, substantially alter or end the qualified immunity doctrine.
2: So barring the... Federal circuit courts that would have to, I guess, advance a case to the Supreme Court, legislation would be the only other way to change uh, the effectiveness or even the use, the legality of this doctrine. Is that true?
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. Unless the Supreme Court ends qualified immunity itself— the best uh, alternative is federal legislation ending qualified immunity uh, in federal courts. Uh, The third best option, and what we're seeing happen in states and municipalities across the country, is that states also retain the ability through legislation to end um, or abolish or do away with immunity defenses that officers have for state law claims, raising civil rights issues. Um, But to do away with the qualified immunity defense in federal circuit courts and in federal courts, federal legislation addressing the qualified immunity issue would be necessary.
2: Wow. If, If you look around and see pushback against police reform, and the Republican attempts at the state and federal level to roll back voting rights and even attempts to make sure we don't teach the history of racism in America in our public schools. Do you think that this is all connected? I've heard some say this is a second or third Jim Crow.
1: Yeah. I've heard that characterization before, and I don't know that I have a position on the characterization. I'd like to give that some more thought, but I do think there's some connection There's a common thread among the challenges to police reform and voting reform and, you know, Black history education point you raised. They're all reactions to previous inroads that Black people have made or have started to make in the policing context, in the voting context, um, and in the general acceptance and appreciation of Black history. Last summer's racial justice protests spurred an unprecedented movement for police reform across the country, across the world. Um, And people were openly acknowledging the harm that current, current policing practices cause black people. Um, And they were taken to the streets in protest. Um, And many people perceived this response as a threat to police officers. And hence we have the pushback to police reform that some think would Reduce protections for police officers, like the abolition of qualified immunity. And you see the similar thing in the voting context. The 2020 federal election saw the largest turnout among voters of color in the history of this country. Um, And in response, state legislatures across the country are making every effort to make voting more difficult for historically disenfranchised voters, Uh, black voters, other voters of color, elderly voters, voters with disabilities. And these reactive laws and policies are really nothing more than an attempt to maintain the status quo of caste and uh, less than-ness and otherness that Black people and other people of color and other um, historically disenfranchised people are saddled by. Um, And it makes LDF's efforts and other organizations' efforts to combat these policies, especially critical today.
2: My goodness. My goodness. Wow. I'm interested in what the complexity of the commercial litigation you were doing in Houston was and how that differs from what you're doing now.
1: <laughs> I can start with the, the second part of the question. I mean, uh, the work I was doing is miles and miles apart from the work I am doing. I did enjoy the commercial litigation uh, I was doing Um, In Houston, and I was at a boutique law firm doing uh, plaintiff side and defense side, you know, litigation, just sort of, you know, making sure, uh, let's see, how do I put this in a non cynical way, you know, litigating contract disputes um, and oil and gas lease disputes and, and all of that. And it was fulfilling and it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, But I think it's pretty serendipitous that I came across this, you know, posting for a fellowship opportunity at LDF in December 2019, and I joined LDF in February 2020, and then the pandemic hits, and then the racial justice protests hit. I will say when I was in the commercial litigation space, I was yearning for uh, more meaningful work that sort of, you know, touched me um and sort and of motivated me to get out of bed every day. And I to say that I found it is an understatement. I mean, I've lost sleep. I didn't even go to bed. I stayed, you know, stayed awake for months and months doing the work uh of LDF and you know to be a part of this organization at this moment. Um, To be doing work in the criminal justice space, to be advocating for the abolition of qualified immunity, to be litigating voting rights cases, to be engaged in, you know, desegregation litigation, uh, making sure school children have what they need to succeed in the midst of a global pandemic is just, um, you know, so fulfilling. And it's been a very rich, rich experience um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for, for the opportunity to do the work that I do and to speak to you all. Um, and likewise, I mean, the this podcast and the work that you've been have been doing, you all have been doing around the qualified immunity issues just really, really uh, amazing, and really does make this arcane, uh, previously not really known legal doctrine, you know, palatable. Um, and accessible to so many people. Um, and it's it's really, it makes our work a, a ton easier. So thank you so much.
2: Well, Mahogany, thank you so much for joining us on Unaccountable. We are indebted to your service. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So remember, don't just listen to this podcast and then put your phone down. We need you to act now. Now is when this legislation is moving through the Senate. You can share this podcast on social media using the hashtag unaccountable. And tell all your family and friends about it. And finally, we need you to call your senator
2: now. Tell them you want them to vote to abolish qualified immunity and hold the police accountable. Call the United States Capitol switchboard at 202-224-3121. Just tell them where you live and they'll connect you to your Senate office. We'll see you next time. This is a Crowd Network podcast presented by me, Aloe Black, and my co-host, Ben Cohen. It was produced by Luis William and Michael Epstein and edited by Mickey Curling.
1: Crowd Network, a place where you belong.